the way we make healthcare better in America, to bring better health to more people at lower cost, is by doing not just one big sweeping health insurance reform, but rather by doing hundreds, thousands of small things. And drones offer the possibility of doing a lot of small things and, and some fairly big things as well. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. What comes to mind when you hear the word drones? For some, the answer might be a remotely piloted military aircraft. For others, it might be the little quadcopter you fly around in your backyard for fun. But for our guest today, drones might be the future of healthcare. Other countries have already started experimenting with drone technology in order to deliver medication, blood, and other supplies, and the technology could one day replace or augment some ambulances or emergency helicopters, making such services more accessible, affordable, and safer. But we aren't there yet, and here to talk about what it might take to get us there are two healthcare policy experts who just co-authored an essay for STAT entitled, Drones Delivering Medical Supplies and More Can Help Save American Lives. First, we're joined on the phone by Dr. Darcy Nicole Bryan, an associate clinical professor at the University of California and a practicing physician at the Riverside Medical Clinic. Also relevant to today's discussion, she is a certified remote pilot. So welcome to the show, Dr. Bryan. Hi, thank you. I'm glad I'm here. And I'd also like to welcome Robert Grayboys, PhD economist and senior research fellow here at Mercatus. Bob is an award-winning professor of health economics, and his current research focuses on technological innovation in the healthcare space. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Thanks. And uh, as for Darcy, I'll have to mention, too, that she's also a student pilot um, with with humans on there as well. <laughs> a practitioner in many senses <laughs> yes, relevant yes. to today's conversation. Yeah. Uh, mainly myself uh, up in that air. So that's that's been fun. Well, just to get us started, I'd like to get a sense of why this issue matters to, to the both of you. There's obviously a lot to write about in the healthcare policy space, but you both decided to spend some time focusing on medical drone technology specifically. Why is that the case? One of my arguments is that uh, the way we make healthcare better in America, to bring better health to more people at lower cost, is by doing not just one big sweeping health insurance reform, but ra- rather by doing hundreds, thousands of small things. And and drones offer the possibility of doing a lot of small things and, and some fairly big things as well. So delivering, uh, well, we'll get into what the specifics are, but there are lots, lots of ways. And also, I think we did it because, I don't know, it's kind of a fun topic. It's, a, it's an interesting yeah. angle on it. Yeah, I agree. And, and Probably what got me thinking along uh, the terms of drones was I, I started taking private pilot lessons, and it's one of those things that you either you love or you hate. And uh, when you're up there in that in that you know airspace or in the sky, it was just an amazing experience. And so I wanted to know how I could combine um, aviation and healthcare, and this is just such a great fit because. Like Bob was saying, we're in critical need of innovation in healthcare. I love Bob's research; it's very positive, and and so that was just uh, such a great fit because I think um, drones have a great potential to improve things for a lot of people if used wisely. And um, and but we'll also get into some of the the risks of of integrating them into our airspace. But I think the benefits for public safety and for healthcare are, are pretty amazing. Well, it sounds like 
you know, I, I'm bought on board. You guys have gotten me excited. I'm, I'm, I'm into this now. Uh, but my next logical question, I think, is, and well, why don't we already have this, right? We, the military uses drones all the time. We have drones for police and firefighting purposes. That seems, from a layperson's perspective, like the technology is kind of there. And the U.S. has always been viewed as a global leader in innovation. But, you know, we see countries like Rwanda and Tanzania seem to be leading the charge here instead of the U.S., at least from my perspective. Is it something like the infrastructure of the U.S. makes these technologies less important? Are there technological or policy roadblocks? If these things are so great, I guess what I'm asking is why don't we have them buzzing around our, our states yet? So some, some of the uh, objections that you named or some of the obstacles that you named uh, are often cited. We have better roads than Rwanda so that if you're trying to transport blood supplies or human organs or whatever it is, uh, we've got pretty good roads for it, and often they don't. Uh, there's also the matter that our skies are pretty pretty full. I mean, there are safety concerns. Uh, Darcy, the airplane pilot, does not want to run into Darcy, the, uh, <laughs> the, the drone pilot. Hopefully, right. hopefully you're not operating a drone while also piloting your craft, Darcy. Uh, well, I'm working on cloning myself. So, <laughs> so there are some valid concerns, and but then on the other hand, they offer an awful lot of possibilities here, uh, life-saving situations, life-improving situations, and cost-cutting situations. I also think it's important to remember that the vast majority of the United States is rural. And, you know, people like me who, who live in large urban centers tend to forget that uh, the majority of the United States is, is rural. And I think that we see our rural hospitals and our clinics are really suffering and sometimes collapsing financially. And so when you happen to live in a state or an area where it's a good one to two hours before you can get to a clinic or a healthcare center, I think you start to rethink that difference between us and underdeveloped nations. I do think that there's areas in the United States who have very similar problems. Yeah, I, I actually kind of had that example in, in mind, Darcy, when I asked that question, because I'm a Kentucky native, and that's obviously a pretty rural state compared to a place like California. So I'm I'm wondering from your all's perspective, imagine that I am rural American right now and with what you all understand about the healthcare infrastructure in rural America, what would you tell me if I said, well, how would I really benefit? You know, what are some of the specific examples of how a medical drone might improve the day-to-day -day life of someone who's in need of healthcare in a rural part of America? Well, if you've got an odd blood type and you've been in a car wreck, uh, it might it might get the blood to save you to your hospital a lot faster than it would if you had to have someone drive it. Another example, um, and it's already been done in, in other countries, is transportation of defibrillators. So you can imagine if you were hiking in a remote area, you know, and you had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you probably would not make it um, unless uh, first responders could get to you relatively quickly. And so this would help possibly augment that. You could think of in terms of large traumas, helping the first responders get anticoagulants, bandages, um, things like that. So it's, it's mostly to help overcome the problems of distance in, in providing health care. You could even imagine a telemedicine component where if you were 
uh, in a remote area and you couldn't, you wanted to have a face-to-face conversation with a provider who was in a, a larger healthcare center, you could imagine that um, one of these vehicles could transport a telemedicine component so you could have a conversation with the provider. Uh, there's any number of, of things that you can think of um, using these devices. Yeah, it's not just for the um, uh, rural areas either. You can imagine situations where the weather is bad, where the roads are slick, or whether if you've got to fly something somewhere and the the cloud cover uh, makes it too dangerous for humans, let's say wind as well, humans to fly an organ or drugs, whatever. You can take a lot greater risk with an un you know, with an unmanned vehicle uh, than you can with something that's carrying human beings in it. You can also imagine in Southern California where Darcy is, if you're trying to get some critically needed supplies to a hospital and it happens to be rush hour in L.A. and you're not going to get it through that traffic, but you might just be able to get it through the air. But I would also say that there there are indirect reasons. If you're if you out in Kentucky uh, are asking that question, can also say, well, right now, if you if you have these services, if you if you need some critical services that have to come in, say by a helicopter, you have to pay for enough fuel to get a helicopter there. You have to have a pay a pilot. You have to have a pilot somewhere nearby. Whereas with drone technology, you know, conceivably you could have one guy in a hut somewhere in Kansas who is flying your drone in Kentucky. And when he gets through with you, is flying someone else's drone in California. Uh, and so it allows you to enjoy economies of scale that simply can't be enjoyed in situations where you have to have human beings actually piloting the things. And, and I know, Darcy, you specifically kind of mentioned that as a, as a practitioner, you're interested in the, the benefits to you actually helping people with their health care needs. One of the, the pushback right. areas that I've been most surprised at uh, was an international example. Uh, and that's the Ghana Medical Association has been a little critical of of Ghana's efforts to roll out medical drones. And I think some of that criticism has been that their specific country might might need more in more financing, more investment in sort of personnel, sort of boots on the ground, more doctors and nurses. And I can imagine someone having the same concern here, right? Whether it's a, a crowded city hospital or remote rural hospital, they might say, well, this technology is fun, it's interesting, it's, it's, it's good to talk about, but really right now what we need is just more people. So I'm, I'm interested in how you all would respond to, to that version of, of criticism about drone technology. Well, I think off the top of my head, I would say that that's probably a, a knee-jerk reaction in thinking this is sort of an exotic, kind of a show-me uh, kind of technology. But I do think that that the technology itself has this incredible capacity to really uh, restructure how we provide healthcare. It's like one of those logistical changes that we can't even predict. Um, it's a first domino, and so it's going to be interesting to see what the next fifty years will look like and how we provide healthcare, especially with. I'll, I'll take it back to the United States. Um, and, I'll, and of course, I'll ask Bob because I know he's familiar with, with Africa more than I am. But in terms of the Internet of Things, and you can think of, of drones as being one piece in that puzzle like of smart homes, of being able to bring healthcare back into the home. It's only been the past 
hundred years or so that we've actually transported people out of their homes and put them in hospitals and clinics to provide health care. And uh, all the expense that would go in into building those facilities versus bringing health care back into the home and having these vehicles being one component to being able to bring uh, telemedicine or um, medications or supplies to people in their home. So um, that would be my argument that we may find that uh, it's much more cost effective to bring um, as much health care back into the home as possible. Right. And, and you, you might mention to the doctor in Ghana that so if you need blood supplies transported across the country and there's some significant distances available in Ghana, again, it's a lot less expensive to take a... Uh, you know, I don't know how much the the drones weigh. The uh, uh, for this kind of work, you really need a fixed wing drone. But you're talking about I don't know if you're talking about a hundred pounds to fly that across the country, uh, as opposed to if you had probably to drone. not a hundred. Yeah, I don't. I don't think probably so. Probably more like twenty five to fifty. Yeah, because yeah, I've seen films of people picking the things up. So I unless they're weightlifters, right. I, I, I assume they're, they're, they're kind of lighter. <laughs> Uh, but but if you have to bear the expense of moving a three or four ton truck, uh, or at least a two ton automobile, uh, along with paying for a driver to be accompanying that vehicle across the country, you can make the argument that well, the drone will lessen your need on those trucks and cars and drivers, and you can take what you would have been paying for those things and put it towards supplies in your hospitals and perhaps paying for more doctors. You know, it's almost a force multiplier in that sense is what you're saying. It's, yes. Instead of replacing people, really, we're just letting the doctors and the nurses that exist now do more with the, the resources that they already exactly. have. I, I want to stay on this theme of some of the other common objections because there are a few that I don't think are specific to medical drones necessarily, but that Whenever you talk about drones of any type, people get really nervous about a handful of common issues. And the first one is usually privacy, right? That whatever type of drone it is, if we open the the airspace to these products, we're going to have people flying drones all over. They're going to be taking pictures. They're going to be filming. Every time we look up in the sky, we have no idea if there's a drone 100 feet in the air taking a picture of us. So there are a lot of privacy concerns associated with sort of filling up the, the close to ground airspace. That seems relevant to me from a medical drone perspective, just because obviously you're sending these drones where there are people. Are, are there any responses you all have to someone who says, look, this is a good technology. I want to explore it, but for the privacy concerns? Yeah, I would start by saying if you're worried about the uh, the privacy concern, that horse has already left the barn. <laughs> there are a lot of hobbyists flying drones around and no doubt some of them doing nefarious deeds with them. That's out there. And I would have concerns about private owners doing such things. I'm not that worried that the clinic is going to uh, stick some RH negative blood in it and saying, hmm, while we're at it, why don't we take some pictures? So you you are talking about a different clientele, a different, different set of operators. So uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable to to think about the privacy concerns for private operators. I don't think it's as big a concern with with some sort of a medical outfit doing it. And, and I think just physically, if you're dealing, as you would in this space, with fixed-wing craft, it's not like quadcopters, which you can hover and do all those troubling things with. You can't do that with a fixed wing. So I don't see that it's that much of a problem. Right. 
I do think it's important, though, that because public perception is so critical in terms of generating regulations, that um, we don't have this sort of overreaction to that possibility, in which case it could really make it quite difficult to use the positive potentials. I think we've got some really good existing privacy and property rights already on the books, and I think we should be very cautious about coming up with something very that's specifically drone-related and use the what we already have in terms of our, our laws. It's going to also be interesting to try to figure out um, how much of the airspace a private property owner does own. I think there's a lot of question marks in terms of of using this technology and and a lot of things that are open that need to be figured out. Um, but what we need to do as as a country um, is is try to have a balanced reaction to it because I do think those issues are very important, but we also have the potential of really handicapping something that could do a great deal of good for people. Well, I'm going to ask this question with the thought that some of your answers may be the same, uh, but there's the, the other issue, again, related to all, all types of drone technology, not just medical drones, it tends to be cybersecurity concerns. So this is the idea of, okay, you've gotten me to the point. I like the idea of medical drones. I'm okay with them flying over populated spaces. I can live with all that. But what happens when someone hacks them, right? What happens if there's a cybersecurity breach and whether it's someone trying to hack a drone to steal prescription medication or someone just causing mayhem and causing them to crash just for fun. Is, is there a specific concern that you all have on, on the cybersecurity side of things? And is that a reason to sort of walk carefully in this space? I'll mostly defer to Darcy since she, she has, has a lot more experience in things that fly in the air <laughs> and in drones in particular. <laughs> you know, it's, certainly, it's certainly a concern. And again, I would say... I'm probably more concerned with the hobbyist sort of machines rather than the machines that, that a hospital or, or blood supply would, would buy. We did get some wonderful advice from a couple of Darcy's colleagues uh, on the article that we just wrote. And one of the mentions in it was one of the suggestions by a significant expert who, uh, who advised her is that eventually these things are going to need something like a transponder. Uh, it's going to have to have an ID and something that's going to integrate it into the airspace, both for safety concerns, but also, you know, for all of these other reasons as well. Right. I, I think that counter drone technology is an area of active research. That research is going to be critical for getting the whole system up and running in the United States in a very reasonable way. Um, just like, for example, we have rules on the highways where we're driving our cars and our ability to actually enforce those rules. Um, we need to be able to do that equally um, with unmanned uh, vehicles. So this is going to be very critical in actually making the whole thing successful. I do know that the FAA, the, um, the Congress passed the 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act, and part of that uh, mandate was was focusing in on these very issues uh, and supporting research in these issues. I know that there's active research uh, in terms of securing data links so that you have command and control that cannot be breached in your ability to pilot the craft. Remote ID piloting um, is very important. And so I know groups like NASA and the military uh, are already working on that. 
In fact, I went to a conference, but this was, I didn't have security clearance to go to those particular talks. So I can't get into too much detail other than to know that it's it's an area of active research. Well, I was going to say that's maybe a good sign that it is being taken seriously, that uh, you needed security clearance to get into, yes. the, <laughs> to get into the conference part. <laughs> that's That actually sets us up really well for where I wanted to go next. You mentioned the 2018 FAA reauthorization that Congress passed. I'm curious about the policy landscape and your all's perspective on that. I mentioned right now that that's one area that might be an obstacle, at least, again, from an outsider's perspective. My first thought is, well, is there a policy reason why why we don't have these things? So I, this is another kind of open-ended question. I'll, I'll let you all take whatever direction you want. Are there spaces that are existing in our regulatory structure now that you all think should change in order to get the most out of medical drone technology uh, while alleviating some of the concerns that we talked about? Or are there new issues for policymakers that maybe didn't exist before this kind of technology that you'd like to see Congress or regulatory agencies explore? Well, I would think that one thing, there's there's a whole bunch of issues. And, and I would frame it by by saying that our national airspace was essentially established in the, in the 1950s. So if you think of airspace, it's a, you have to think in terms of three dimensions and in terms of height and what happens at certain levels of, of height. So that kind of uh, structure, um, regulatory structure, was established in the 1950s. But but transportation technology has radically changed since then, right? So we've got this kind of 1950s infrastructure with uh, 21st century technology. And so I think what we really need to do is radically restructure our airspace to account for that. And that's going to be difficult because we have what's called sunk costs, right? We, we spent 60 years developing this structure and our technology has radically changed. So how do you, how do you negotiate that? Um, how much do you throw out? How much do you keep uh, economically speaking? And, um, and I think it's going to be an area of collaboration across different different bodies in in the government. Um, but first and foremost is what what kind of traffic management are we going to have for these vehicles? Where are they going to be? I know we've already talked about the very low level airspace, but there's airspace upper E airspace, which is a sixty thousand feet and above. Um, and that's where the military has been typically, but um, large companies are thinking about transporting things across countries rapidly using these devices. So that's an that's an area that um, I know industry is very interested in. We need to think about in terms of how to negotiate beyond line of sight operations. Uh, and for that, you're going to need to have really good and reliable sense and avoid technology. So how can we automate these vehicles to avoid manned aircraft and be the first one to respond and get out of the way? Uh, that has to be highly reliable to make uh, package delivery and um, beyond line of sight operations a, a realistic option. And then, of course, securing our airports. That's going to be critical as well. So there's a lot, a lot of complexity to this. But I think the most difficult thing is um, actually restructuring our national airspace to account for our current technology. And I'll just say that I'm somewhere between an optimist and a pessimist on how quickly these things, how quickly we can really make full use of drones, not just in healthcare, but in other things. So you will get the techno-optimists, and I'm often... I'm often one of those, but in this particular case, you'll have techno-optimists thinking, 
Well, we'll we'll very soon have Amazon and CVS and everyone else flying millions of these things around, dropping packages in on your front porch, whatever. I'm I'm skeptical that we're going to be at that point anytime soon because simply the the laws of chance and probability. If you have that many objects whizzing around in the airspace. Some of them are going to bump into airliners uh, or manned aircraft, and not only is it a risk for the people in the airplane, but it's a risk for once that happens in one case, from a public policy standpoint, you will get an awful lot of technophobia out of one bad incident. So I suspect that we're going to go fairly slow on these, and and I my thought has been that healthcare is probably ought to be at the forefront of it just because of the enormous value and because the people who are going to be running that are going to be on the far more reliable end of the spectrum compared with with other potential users. Are you, are you suggesting that medical drones might be more important than me getting my lunch delivered via drone aircraft? <laughs> well, yeah, it might be. I suppose that's a fair trade-off if we have to start uh, divvying up airspace. I will say that's that's probably enough, if you'll pardon the expression, droning on uh, from me for today. Uh, I, I do want to thank our, uh, our, our guests, and I want to make sure that uh, we have some place for our listeners to go to keep up with your all's work online. Uh, so if you've got a, a Twitter handle or a website that you'd like to recommend, this would be a great time to do it. So for those listening to us wondering when they can have medical equipment airdropped to them and, and want to follow the issue, uh, we'll just kind of go around the table uh, starting starting with you, Bob, and, uh, and, and let folks know where they might go to learn more about the issue. Well, I would say the simplest one is to to come to our website, mercatus.org, M-E-R-C-A-T-U-S dot O-R-G. And if you go in there and type drone or health or whatever, most of these things will pop up. I am also on Twitter, at sign Robert underscore, and my last name, which you will probably misspell, but it's G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S. So Robert underscore G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S. Great. And, and Darcy? Yes. Well, I'm I'm less uh, I'm less socially integrated than Bob is, so certainly uh, feel free to give out my my email address. Um, I would be very interested in other people's thoughts on these issues. Great. We yes, can, we can include those in the show notes. Certainly. Yeah, I spend more time in cyberspace. She spends it in the airspace. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, yeah. it, it turned into a, a potent conversation and I think the perfect mix of expertise for today's conversation. So I, uh, I definitely appreciate that. And, and our listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Uh, we do have Kate Delanoy joining us in the studio right after this for What's on Tap, so stick around for that. Until then, thanks again to our guests for their time and expertise, and thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next time. And with that, it's time for our What's on Tap segment. So I'm joined by co-host Kate Delanoy, and we have before us Aleworks Brewing Company's Coffee House. It's their winter seasonal. It's described as a rich milk stout brewed with a healthy amount of Guatemala, I think, Antigua coffee? Antigua? I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Uh, but a coffee stout, effectively. I mean, I would, I'm not going to say anything. I don't, I don't know one way or another. But what I do know is what's on tap here at Mercatus this week. So one of the exciting papers that we've put out recently is a policy brief by Steph Miller, and he's looking at something known as the recourse rule. Uh, 
maybe you have heard of it, but maybe you haven't, but it's actually a very important rule and had a big part in the financial crisis in 2008. So basically, this rule reduced the number amount of capital that bank holding companies were required to have, which meant they could go out and invest the capital in other things. Unfortunately, what a lot of bank holding companies did was decide to go out and invest in these more risky investments, a lot of the things that ended up leading to the crisis. So Steph kind of goes through all of that and how we can, you know, what we need to do to protect ourselves and make sure that we don't end up in a situation like that again. Yeah, I think one of the common understandings of the financial crisis was large financial institutions took took on these risky assets. But not a lot of people stop and ask, well, if they were so risky, why were they taking them on? And I th- Steph's work in this field, I think, has been really enlightening as to why some of these financial institutions were interested in doing so. And as he says, it was because of some regulatory changes. Speaking of regulatory changes, we have a new state snapshot out there. Maine is our latest one. So James Broll goes through, looks at the Maine regulatory code. And I'm going to let you guess, if you were reading the Maine regulatory code as a full-time job, how many days do you or how many weeks, sorry, do you think it would take you? Oh boy, howdy. Well, I do a lot of audiobooks and maybe a long audiobook is something like forty or fifty hours. So maybe a couple of those, so let's say eighty to ninety hours. I don't know how many weeks that is just a number of days at that point. So I guess I'm way undershooting it probably. You are. It's gonna take you more than eleven weeks. Yikes. To read the main regulatory code as your full time job. Luckily for you, because we did the snapshot, you don't have to. You can go into the snapshot and get all the information, but there's a lot going on there, and I definitely encourage folks to go out and check it out, and even if you're not from Maine, but this sounds interesting, we've done a bunch of them already. We have more to come, so make sure you're following all the work on those. And finally, we've got some new research coming out here shortly from Dan Griswold looking at the Reciprocal Trade Act, and this is looking at what some people are calling mere tariffs. So encourage everybody. Tariffs have been obviously in the news a lot to keep an eye on Mercatus' website as well as Dan Griswold's Twitter to see the latest on that. Yeah, and we've had Dan on the show a couple of times talking about the escalating trade war and about tariff issues. So we're looking forward to that piece from Dan. With that, I'm going to go ahead and transition to the coffee house. Mm-hmm. If you had a chance to try it and have. and have some thoughts. I really enjoy it. I love a good coffee stout. I feel like it's the my hardest thing with them is I'm like, when is the time to drink it? Because I never, not good at pairing them with food. But it turns out that while recording a podcast <laughs> is an excellent time to enjoy there a coffee go. style. You get some of the great coffee flavor. Um, I've never had this one, but I, I really enjoy it. I'm going to give it a 3.75. Nice. Uh, I think I'm in about the same place. I think I actually rated this a year or two ago. Uh, and gave it a lower rating, but I'm up to a 3.75 as well. Uh, It tastes a whole lot like coffee, which is exactly what I want in a coffee stout, so I'm pretty happy with it. Well, just as there is the perfect time for a coffee house beer, there is a perfect time to close out a conversation, and I think we're there. So appreciate you sharing with us what's going on at Mercatus this week, and cheers. Cheers. 